From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In an age when so much communication takes place online, music festivals have become vehicles for building real-world community and identity. The Afropunk Festival originated in Brooklyn as a fusion of the musical and cultural heritage of the African diaspora and the raw DIY ethic of punk. Afropunk festivals have spread all over the world thanks to some big-name musical acts and stunning displays of boundary-pushing fashion on Instagram. And it's not all music. Solution Sessions is a series of talks with thought leaders that focus on expression, representation, and support for marginalized communities. My guests are among the featured speakers at Afropunk, covering a variety of concerns for young people of color. Writer and activist and podcaster Bridget Todd joins me from the Marketplace Studios in L.A. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also, Atlanta-based writer Eves Jeffcoat is there in L.A. Hello, Eves. Hi. Hi. How are you? Very well. And writer and activist Ashley Shackelford is right here in the studio with me. Hello and welcome. Hey. All right, Bridget, I'm going to start with you because you are one of the curators of the Solution Sessions talks and, and the podcast that Eves also hosts with you. Afropunk has become a genuine pop culture scene, but you go a lot deeper with Solution Sessions. What kind of things get covered? We cover so many things. You know, we really are about analyzing the experience of being a young black person in 2019 from all angles. So if you're a young black person like me in 2019, you're turning up at music festivals, but you're also concerned about the world around you. You're concerned about politics, the education system, the prison system. So what we really want to say is that you know, you can have a multitude of interests and be this multifaceted person. We're interested in diving into the story of black youth identity from a 360 degree angle. So it really is, you know, how are musicians using music and art to talk about real issues and how can I get involved to help out with those issues? Mm, let's look at some of those real issues. A big topic of current conversation, mental health. It seems like there are a lot of solution sessions focused on that. And Eves, I know you've written about this, specifically the role of cognitive dissonance in anxiety <laughs> and depression. First, can you explain for us what is cognitive dissonance? Yeah, co so cognitive dissonance is kind of this spread between what we believe and what we think we believe. So I think we go through a lot of that in in political times that are harsh, where we feel like we have these values that we hold on to. And sometimes when we run into these big issues, like the ones that we talk about at solution sessions, then we realize that we don't really feel that way or that our values don't align with the ways that we're acting. And we kind of do that to make ourselves feel better in what we do when we are facing these issues and facing problems that we are disconnected from or that we don't know anything about. So yeah, that's that's how cognitive dissonance plays a role. How is that playing out in particular for African Americans today and the young people that you say are that are in your audience? Um well, I think that there are a lot of times when there's this idea that you know, people have our backs or that when I say our I mean black people. Um people are advocating for things that we care about. But then at the end of the day, a lot of times it's that black women who really, we really take care of everything we have to do. You know, a lot of the times we don't have the support that we should be having from other people. And we have, we end up having the burden of solving our issues on our own when it comes down to it. Ashley, I'm wondering for you, are there times where you feel like you are feeling conflicting beliefs or your actions are not really matching your values? Yeah, I mean, I think 
In surviving um, violent systems, it also turns you into a violent person um, when you're trying to decolonize from that. And being actively aware of the very things that we perpetuate within our community can make it that much harder for us to get free, um, but that much harder for us to even know what liberation can look like for all of us when often we're moving in silos or we're not offered spaces like Afropunk that can really unite us through difference and the multifaceted nature of our identities. Um, and how much power exists amongst our communities within the Black community. I understand that there are a lot of terms within the sort of activist community that maybe not everybody who's listening understands. So help me understand decolonizing. Yeah, so decolonizing is really divesting and also deprogramming from what you have been led to believe is true. I spoke about this with Dr. Joy Bradford, who's also going to be at this year's Afropunk Solution Sessions. She's a psychologist and host of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Here's what she had to say about seeking help. We don't always ask for help as women, black women. When we need to, we wait until it's really, really, really bad. And if we do ask for help, then we now lose that expectation of us being that strong black woman. That is a big thing. I'm curious for you, Bridget and Eads there in L.A., who talked to a number of people suffering from anxiety and depression from some of the things that we were just talking about. How do you personally manage your own mental health when you're deep in these issues? That's a great question. For me, number one is definitely therapy. Um, I'm, I'm a big champion of that. But I also understand that not everybody has access to therapy, right? Like there aren't that many black mental health professionals as it is. And so even if you are able to be connected with one, if you have that support, you have insurance or you have the money or whatever, it's already that much more difficult to find one. So I'm also a big fan of kind of breaking away mental health self-care from this sort of capitalistic system where you're paying money to get what you need. So for me, you know, I have my set of things that I have to do every day to show up as my best, most centered self. And, you know, that can look like taking a walk every day in the park or cooking dinner every day or just meditating every day. And, you know, I've learned that only I will be the person that makes sure that that stuff gets done for me. Nobody else on my team is going to be like, oh, do you need to go meditate for 20 minutes? So being kind of militant about making sure that my day every day has time for what I need to show up as my best self. And I think as black folks, especially black women, you know, cultural attitudes about black women as super women who can do it all, you know, who, who don't need help from anybody. Those attitudes are killing us. You know, we are not superhuman. We are not superheroes. We need to take time and have self-care just like anybody else. And so I am militant about it. If someone's like, oh, hey, can you just do this thing? You want to go out? And I haven't gone for my walk or meditated or done my yoga or whatever I need. The answer is no. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think, too, that we have to remember that we are allowed to live in our anger. We are allowed to live in the frustration. We are allowed to have all of those feelings. But that doesn't mean that we are imperfect. That doesn't mean that we are the black angry woman. That doesn't mean that we are the superwoman. You know, we are allowed to live in all those feelings. We are allowed to embody them. Um, and we can choose, you know, the things that we want to do to kind of mediate those feelings. But that doesn't mean that those feelings aren't valid. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that those feelings aren't productive as well. But for me, continuing to self-evaluate is a thing that I do a lot. Um, centering myself, you know, m remembering where I am, situating myself. I know it's really easy to get disassociated sometimes. And that's something that that can be dealt with in many ways. But for me, what I like to do to really 
to really have that self-care, I, I do a lot of meditation. I do a lot of um, on my walk over here to the studio. You know, that was kind of a meditation time for me. I didn't have my glasses so that like I couldn't see um, very well. So that actually helped me, you know, stay remember within that. Like, <laughs> exactly. It helped me stay really present. I was like, oh, this is actually <laughs> this is actually helpful, you know, in, in my meditation. So uh, a bunch of different things. But I agree with Bridget in that it doesn't it doesn't have to be something that we pay for. We are really in, in thinking of the things that are internalized, that that capitalist system um, and the idea of being a consumer all the time can be something that I really internalize a lot and that I am not perfect and that I always have to continue to do the work to make sure that I am able to live to be able to serve. Definitely. My- I just want to add on to something that Eve said. For the longest time, I thought that self-care, like when people would talk about self-care, it's almost like a buzzword. And I thought that was you know, pedicures and spa days. And I didn't have any money for any of those things. So I just thought, oh, I guess I'm boxed out of the whole self-care thing. I guess I don't deserve that. I don't get that because I I can't afford it. And really figuring out ways to carve out time for myself and time for my own healing and centering myself that didn't involve money was huge. My guests are Bridget Todd and Eve Jeffcoat, writers and co-hosts of Afropunk Solution Sessions podcast and author and activist Ashley Shackelford. Uh, We're talking about some of the issues that they will be bringing up at this weekend's Afropunk Festival. We want to get into that idea of the, the image of the angry black woman, which is so predominant in our culture. You are all people who write about bias and injustice and also, you know, as I'm hearing, need to, with some rigor, take care of the self. So how do you wrestle with that? I mean, when you're advising others, when do they speak up rather than staying silent? When do they sit with that anger rather than expressing it? I think it's definitely both and. I want to say that as a non-binary person, I think it's it's a, it's it's both and um, because I often move in a world that does gender me as a black woman. And it's very complicated when you have anger and especially when you're feeling it in spaces that are supposed to feel affirming and they aren't um, because your anger can really turn into a resentment. It can turn into you isolating yourself from community um, because you feel like your community isn't holding you and how it could leave you feeling lonely um, and more angry when the connections that you have are not genuine um, and are not necessarily based in both and of self and community um, survival and thriving. Um, And I think that that is something that I think spaces like Afropunk and spaces um, beyond that, like community organizations and support groups really try to offer um, genuine connections so that anger can actually be um, rooted with others. Um, And then also to channeled and honored all at the same time, because black rage is so important. Um, And, I can't imagine that any black person is not rageful. Um, So I always want to hold that nuance. Wow, you have just unpacked quite a lot, educating us all and not just talking about managing the self. And this is something that is characteristic of all activists today, the notion of justified rage. Bridget, you educate activists. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I have something to add. I mean, I, I completely agree with everything that Ashley said. I was It was hard for me not to be snapping in the <laughs> studio here. Um, and one of the things, you know, I've spent almost a decade of my life training organizers and activists on how to use emotions to, to fuel their work, right? We have the thing that Eves was saying earlier, we have this lie that we tell ourselves about black women, especially that our anger is bad. Something is wrong with it. If you feel angry, something is wrong with you. It will mark you for life like this scarlet letter that no one will want to deal with you if you are angry. That's not true. Right. Anger can be productive. It can be useful. 
one of the things that someone once shared on the on the podcast Solution Sessions, um, the podcast, Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of um, Black Lives Matter, she talked about you know when she became an activist. She was this young person with her partner kissing her partner in a public park and. Uh, a man came and scolded her. I think it was a police officer scolded her and made her feel small and less than. And she got pissed off. She was like, I'm allowed to have a, a romantic moment with my partner in the park if I want to. And so that anger, rather than just sort of nursing it and going home and, you know, blasting some angry music, which would have been fine, which would have been totally productive, she used that anger and it fueled her her sort of righteous rage to become this legendary, globally known activist. And I think if we, if every time we experienced anger and we said, no, I need to, you know, turn away from this feeling, we would never get a chance to see what's on the other side of that feeling, to, to push through that anger and say, how can I turn this into something productive? How can I make this something that's going to you know, spark change in my world? You know, whether it's on an individual level, you know, just going home and sitting with it and nursing it and, you know, sulking for a day if you need to do that or using that anger to change the world. You know, I think when we throw those emotions away, when we run from them, that is when we're really doing a disservice to ourselves. I believe that Patrice Conkullers also said that therapy should be part of reparations. Which <laughs> she did say that, <laughs> which I, I could not agree more. You know, something that Ashley said earlier is all the different, think about all the different things that our people have not had full access to, whether it is, you know, resources, money, therapy, healthcare, education, all of that. But small things, sleep, time to, you know, dream, time to, you know, mm. fantasize, time to be frivolous and dance and have a good time. What would our what would our world look like if we had been if we had not been denied all of these things? What would our ancestors look like if they had time to sleep and dream and fantasize and play and goof off and have fun and dance and twerk and all of the things that frankly I personally take for granted? What would our society look like if our people had had full and equal access to all of that, the full spectrum? Bridget Todd there among the speakers at this weekend's Afropunk Festival in Atlanta. Also with me, Eve's Jeffcoat and Ashley Shackelford, leading solution sessions at the festival. We're going to take a quick break and continue the conversation in a couple minutes. You're listening to FKA Twigs. She is one of the featured performers at this year's festival. This song is Cellophane. They wanna see us, wanna see us apart We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. My skin is black. My arms are long. That's Nina Simone's Four Women, each verse portraying a stereotype of a different kind of African-American woman at the time it was recorded. Black women have been boxed into many narrow images across the country's history. And we're talking to some thought leaders who have dedicated themselves to considering and reconsidering and expanding roles for black women, however they identify, at a time when more and more women of color are taking their place in politics, entertainment, and other spheres of power and influence. What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah. 
My guests are Bridget Todd and Eve Jeffcoat, co-hosts of the Afropunk Solution Sessions podcast, and Ashley Shackelford, writer and activist based in Atlanta. They're all going to take the stage this weekend at Afropunk's Solutions Sessions, this year diving deep into the intersections of blackness and gender and especially concerns of young people in the Deep South. Well, let's step back a little bit and look at the history of black female activism. Often when we talk about civil rights and black liberation movements, the default is to think of male leaders, you know, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, and even further back, Frederick Douglass. Plenty of women also involved. So how are women's contributions represented or underrepresented, do you think, in that history, in that movement? I could say traditionally not represented, right? I mean, when I grew up, I grew up thinking that men, black men, led the movement. And women, I guess, were not there. You know, we don't see, you know, we grow up memorizing the na- names that you just said, you know, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Maybe you learn about the three, you know, Rosa Parks, your Harriet Tubman. You get those get those ladies out of the way. But you don't actually really take any kind of meaningful look into the roles that black women have, have played all throughout history at every turn of civil rights. Whenever there was a fight for justice or power or representation, black women were there. One of the guests we were lucky enough to have at our solution sessions in Brooklyn was the amazing, fabulous Elaine Brown. Unfortunately, most people don't know her name. I she don't know only... her. I'm sorry. Well, there we go. So Elaine Brown was the only woman leader of the Black Panther Party. After Huey P. Newton left, she you know, took over the reins. And it was not easy for her as a black woman leading a party full of black men, like radical black men. But, you know, I think that we have been... Unfortunately, we have been sold this story that black women, our stories, our voices were either not there or that they were very peripheral. And even when you think about the ways that black women did serve the movement, whether they were taking care of the kids or cooking or doing the the labor that allowed men to go out to the front lines, that labor has been, you know, systematically devalued. And so even if they weren't leading a party, women were always there. Just to piggyback quickly off of what Bridget said about the women who were organizing, the women who were taking care of children, the women who were cooking, um, a lot of the times those things are framed as things that happened behind the scenes Mm. and that there were just minor actions that contributed to the action. And those were just as valuable to to everything that had to be done in those movements, in the liberation movements. And I think that also goes into the devaluation of what they were doing, is that looked at as if it were inferior work or was work that was just like an aside or unnecessary to the work that was being done, but it was truly integral. Here's civil rights leader Malcolm X, one of those famous men, in a famous statement about black women in America. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Now, Beyonce famously used part of this clip in her Lemonade visual album. But in his autobiography, Malcolm X wrote about how long it took for him to get to this conclusion at this time. How do you think this statement resonates today? I think it's a little bit bittersweet um, just because we experience violence at the hands of all non-Black people and intimately with Black cis men. Um, So I want to say that the 19 Black trans women that have been killed this year have been killed by Black cis men. Um, So we're talking, and when we're talking about domestic violence rates with Black women who are more likely to die than by any other race by gun, 
were talking about their intimate relationships and partnerships with black cis men. And so in that, I think that that really speaks to the to the the visceral nature, um, the violence that black women and other black gender oppressed folks are experiencing in our community and outside of it. I just want to pause to quickly define the term cis for people who may not know. It's short for cisgendered, meaning someone whose gender identity matches the sex that they were assigned with at birth. I want to go back to something that Ashley said, because I think it's so important, which is this idea that we have to contend with the idea that a lot of times the people perpetrating violence are our own. It's our it's it's black cis men. And what brought me into this movement and brought a lot of us into this movement was police violence, right? Like Mike Brown, you know, like young, unarmed black men being killed by police. But then I had to sort of expand my kind of galaxy brain and say, oh, wait, it's not just white police officers targeting black men. It's police officers of all races targeting all black folks, black women included. And I noticed, oh, well, when a, when a woman is killed, we don't ride for a woman the way that we are expected to ride for a black cis man. And then my my kind of galaxy brain exp- expanded again. And it's like, oh, if that person is gender nonconforming or trans or, you know, masculine, pre- a masculine presenting woman, like if this person does not fit a very narrow understanding of gender, then we really don't ride for them. And in fact, we, you know, disrespect them. We we float this idea that something nefarious was going on or they somehow deserve their own their own violence or their own death. I, I sound like I'm rambling, but thinking through those different nuances and saying, oh, well, we have been told that justice for black folks looks like marching in the streets when a white when a black cis man is killed by a white cop and understanding that it's it's so much more than that. And being willing to reckon with that, even if it's uncomfortable, for me was a, a, a really powerful thing in my in my own understanding of, you know, my activism. My guests are Ashley Shackelford, a writer and organizer and artist based in Atlanta, Afropunk Solution Sessions co-host Eves Jeffcoat and Bridget Todd are also with me from L.A. Bridget just reminded me of something. I remember speaking to the Georgia author and playwright Pearl Clegg, and she wrote an essay back in the 90s, Mad at Miles, which basically was highlighting the duality of Miles Davis, you know, this beloved black celebrity, but also somebody kind of bragged about domestic violence, you know, about um, Cicely Tyson, who was his partner for a long time in in his biography. And Pearl took a lot of flack for criticizing a man held up as a beacon in the black community. And wondering if you have any further reflection on that, that sort of idea that you first must stand behind, quote unquote, blackness before anything else. Mm. Oh, a, uh, someone got flack for criticizing a famous black man. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, I I can understand this protective feeling of being like, no, I don't like don't talk bad about Miles Davis. Don't talk bad about Bill Cosby. Don't talk bad about Dave Chappelle's, you know, transphobic comedy. We only get so many. Like, why do you want to take down our black men? I I mean, it, it just it it makes me so sad because I think that. You know, I want black people to be great. I want black men to be great. I want to lovingly, if I see Dave Chappelle making a a transphobic comedy set, I want to lovingly tell him why that is a mistake so that he can be better. If Miles Davis thinks it's appropriate, you know, someone as smart and talented and brilliant as Miles Davis, if he doesn't see why it's not okay to 
laugh in his autobiography about beating the crap out of Cicely Tyson, who is also brilliant and talented and amazing. I want him to be better. And so I think this idea that we we can't target our own or criticize our own is so sad because that's how we get better. I just also want to um, just contextualize that, you know, often when we're when we're having the most visible protests, when we I feel like since Ferguson, since Trayvon, really, Trayvon um, in particular, I feel like this, which was in Florida. I just really want to ground us in the South. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just want to be clear. I really feel like Trayvon sparked so much of our relationship to digital media with um, our outrage. And I'm also thinking, too, that even in that trajectory of how we've seen Black Lives Matter, how we've seen these um, mass protests, very visibilized protests of our anger, a lot of that relationship is to having a very righteous anger around non-Black violence or non non-black perpetrators of violence against a black person. Um, but when we're talking about intra-community violence, specifically from black cis men, um, we actually don't get the same support. Um, so it's not even just, it's not just a mute R. Kelly situation where we're pushing in a digital space, right? Pushing to fight for this thing like this, this man is a pedophile, this man is a predator, right? But then also, too, even in in murder, we're not having that same conversation, right? Like, because we know sexual assault is also its own trauma in our community about how we address that. And in particular, even when we're talking about murder, we're not, we're not having those same numbers. That is its own toxicity um, that we really, truly have to make, like, we have to demand more room for it, but also, too, we're tired, <laughs> We tired, and so I just want to ground us back in that righteous rage where I'm like, I'm angry, and I'm over it. This is your work. This is what you're doing. But I think activism in the social media age has completely changed, that people can... It can be a coalition building tool. It can draw attention to things that, you know, either you are activist against or for, but also become a lot easier to perform that kind of armchair activism, right? That you can, behind a screen, say that I'm against this or I'm for this. How do you strike a balance between that kind of showing up in real life and just, you know, clicking something online? I wanted to jump in just because this is I spent a long time, a long part of my life doing this professionally. Mm. I think that folks, it's so easy to be like, oh, you just changed your Facebook picture or you just clicked like or you just signed a petition. But in online organizing, we have a expression called the ladder of engagement. And it's kind of boring, but it's the idea that if you are in front of a computer and you take a very low bar ask, you change your Facebook picture, you sign an online petition, you're going to be that much more likely to take an increasingly higher ask. And so if I ask you, sign this petition, and you do it from your the comfort of your dorm or your apartment or whatever, great. Then I ask you, okay, share it with five friends. You're much more likely to share it with five friends if you've already just done the low bar ask of signing it. And so if you follow that ladder, you know, up, 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 the next thing you know, you're getting arrested purposefully outside of the White House to make a point, or you're, you know, gathering in the streets, or you're knocking doors, or you're, you know, taking some sort of high bar in real life action. And so people like to to crawl over kind of quote unquote hashtag activism, but it, it's been shown that someone who takes that first small step from their computer is going to be so much more likely to you know, do the big in real life action that you want them to do, you know, showing up like Ashley's talking about, showing up in real life with their full selves. Um, Bridget, you've worked to train activists through a program that the Washington Post called the Hogwarts of the Democratic Party. (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) Lots of magic. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically this idea that what moves people 
on these issues, you know, when we talk about issues, the things that like Ashley and Eves and I write about and, and work on, these are big, scary issues. And the inclination is to run away from them. You know, the issue that, that, that I always used as an example is climate change. If I hit you with a bunch of facts and figures about how we're all going to die because of climate change, you're probably going to be like, well, guess there's nothing I can do. But what we like to train people on is that actually your story, stories can move people to take actual in real world action. And so if I tell you, you know, a bunch of facts and figures about how we're all going to die because of climate change, you're probably not going to want to take action. If I tell you about my very adorable three-year-old niece and how I want the world to be here for her because she's so cute, I want her to you know, drink clean water and breathe clean air, you're going to be much more likely to take action. If I tell you what it is in me that makes me passionate about this issue, it can connect with something in you that makes you passionate about it too. And those two passions, those two stories can combine and turn into real change and real action. And so you know, this is really, when I, when I first learned about this, it was world changing for me because I thought, oh, wow, storytelling, like that is what moves people. Well, you're reminding me of another conversation, Deneen Milner, um, who is a writer and now publisher, made the point, she did this in a New York Times op-ed, that there's a lot of storytelling about the oppression and struggle of African-Americans. And increasingly, calls from her and other people in the black community to create more around joy and resilience. You know, she's basically saying, we don't want to hear about Harriet Tubman all the time, (laughs) kind of thing. So how do you balance this desire to tell new stories with the desire to process uh, one of the things Ashley was identifying, the inherent violence, not just of the past, but the present? My personal view, you know, I'm constantly surrounded by Black Joint Resilience, so I don't forget that that's a thing. Um, but I do think that, that we are doing a lot better um, in terms of representing stories of what real, what people really, what Black people really go through. Um, not just about joy, but about what a full life looks like. Not centering struggle necessarily, but what a whole life from, from the beginning to the end, what black trans people's lives look like in a, in a, in a TV show like Pose. Um, and I think that having those, those types of shows that really get into the depths of what, it's, what it means to be black from a black perspective for black people, by black people, representing black people in, in a very truthful and honest way is very important. Yeah, and that's, it's not made for the, let's say, the market that was dominating for so long. You're saying we don't need to tell that story to white people. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like uh, anything that I, I make or that needs to be made. I think a lot of people are out there making authentic stories that just that they like Ava DuVernay. You know, she's making authentic stories that need to be told, not necessarily for a certain audience. Mm. Yeah. And I really just want to affirm what Eves was saying, because um, I also think we just I mean, really, I think the sentiment I took from what you said was that that we really don't need to make stories for anyone but ourselves. Um, I don't know if my story would ever be on TV and I, I'm not really concerned if it is. Like, I would, of course, want to have a connection to other Black people via the stories that I have and if there was a um, a connection between what they've experienced too. But I also think to myself, I, I feel like when people frame like, our ancestors didn't die for this, but I'm, I'm, I think to myself that I think what our ancestors fought for the most and what we're fighting for is consent and agency to do whatever you want. Um, so if you want everyone to know your story, you can. And if you don't, you don't. Like, you can just be. And I think that that is like my deepest wanting for, um, black folks is to just be and that your story doesn't have to be something that someone will read 
or hear or listen to because it's still yours and it's still important because it's yours. So Afropunk, is you were talking about creating black spaces. That's what I'm hearing, that there are imp- it's important to have those spaces. But punk is also a mostly male space and at least at the beginning of it, a white space. So what does it mean to, for you to hold neither of those identities as an active participant in this event? So I think that we are really good in solution sessions and getting people feeling really energized and feeling like like what they're doing is important no matter what they're doing and that if they want to take another step, they can do that. Um, I think a lot of times people may get something out of or do get something out of the panels and the talks that they come to at solution sessions that they are able to actually take with them, like step one, step two, step three. I'm going to do this when I leave. I can do this right now. I can pull out my phone and I can tweet about this. And then when I go back, I can go join this organization. Um, People who speak uh, at solution sessions really give people tools to mobilize. How about for you, Bridget? My goal with Solution Sessions is having people know that their voice is powerful and heard and affirmed and loved, and they can show up as their regular, regular selves with their plants unwatered and their you know, apartment a mess and their credit bad and their degree not finished and their hair looking a mess and whatever it is, they can show up as themselves and be affirmed and heard and loved and valued and that we will always make space for them. And big part of Afropunk? The beautiful look of self-expression. I mean, the, the, the photographs that I've taken at Afropunk and seen from other people, that is such a beautiful part of it. Why is that so important to what goes on at Afropunk? Well, I think it's basically just comes down to saying, come as you are. We, we love you for wh- whoever you are and however you come. I think that's true. We spend so much time masking up, whether it's having to dress a certain way, talk a certain way at work or in the club or whatever. It's exhausting and it's it's weighing us down. I think having spaces where you can just show up however you want and we'll, you'll, we'll accept you is so, so important for us. It's, it's critical. Bridget Todd, co-host of the Afropunk Solution Sessions podcast. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. And Eve's Jeffcoat, writer based in Atlanta, co-host also of the Afropunk Solution Sessions podcast. Thank you, Eves. Thank you. It was great to be here. And Ashley Shackelford, Atlanta-based organizer and artist. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Bridget Eves and Ashley will all be speaking on stage this weekend at the live Afropunk Solutions sessions happening on both Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 3. And of course, there will be plenty of music, including Earth Gang, who's one of the headliners. We're hearing tequila from Earth Gang's new album, Mirrorland. And you can hear my extended conversation with the hip-hop duo at gpbnews.org, where you'll also find links to the full Afropunk Festival schedule. And stay with us. Host of GPB's new podcast, Speakeasy, with Deneen is coming up. She's also author of the book series, Fresh Princess. We're going to hear about a new take on an old theme after the break. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air ran for six seasons in the 90s. Its main character, Will Smith, played by actor Will Smith, moved from Philadelphia to live with his aunt and uncle in the wealthy Los Angeles neighborhood of Bel-Air. Well, earlier this year, a new book series launched that revived that plot with a fresh princess 
named Destiny. Deneen Milner is writing this series. She of New York Times bestselling author and GPB's A Seat at the Table fame. Deneen is also host of GPB's newest podcast. It's called Speakeasy with Deneen. The first episode drops on Thursday, October the 24th. I spoke with Deneen just before her book series came out and asked about her relationship with The Fresh Prince. Will and I are around the same age. I think I may have a year on him. And so, no, no, no. We're both the same age. We turned 50 at the same time. And I grew up on his music, right? So I was listening to him when he was with DJ Jazzy Jeff, whom I still listen to, who still makes great music as a DJ out of Philly. And so I'm from, I was more familiar with his music. And when he showed up on television, it was like we thought that he was adorable to begin with. And now we get to see him <laughs> right in our living rooms every, you know, every week. And that was a super influential show. I mean, not just because like fashion wise, I mean, it was a lo- the first time a lot of people had seen anything like a rapper on television. Absolutely. But you know, like what I remember being um, sort of glomming into with that show was the family, um, the mother and the father and the relationship between the cousins, and certainly the siblings, and sort of the everyday experience experiences that they they completely, you know, like put into our living rooms mm. every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I identified with it not just because of the music and um, the celebrity of Will Smith as a rapper, but because what they were talking about and what they were dealing with were things that we were dealing with as kids, teenagers at the time. Yeah, it just felt real. Yeah. Well, now you're collaborating with Will Smith on this three-book series. Um, I'm sure quite a few people would just love to even meet him, never mind work with him. How did this, how did this all come together? <laughs> So, you know, I write books for a living, um, and I also a lot, of books. <laughs> a lot of books for a living, and I write children's books. And I wrote a piece in the New York Times about um, the proliferation of black children's books or books featuring black children's characters and how they're always they always seem to be focused on civil rights um, figures or they're focused on, uh, you know, black firsts or they're talking about slavery. And I wrote a piece that said something to the effect of black children don't want to read about Harriet Tubman all the time. (laughs) And uh, his people saw that piece. I wrote it because I had just started my own children's book imprint and made a point of saying that I would never do those books on my imprint because there were everyday experiences that um, black children had the right to see as see themselves in these books um, and see them portrayed in a way that they just aren't. um, They don't tend to be Mm -hmm. in black children's books. And so his people saw that piece and apparently they were looking for a writer for the series right when they saw that piece. So it was kind of serendipitous. And I did an interview with them and here we are. Uh, so I just want to pull a, a, a quote from that piece because, you know, you write that, that it doesn't have to be about the struggle all the time. In fact, real diversity would celebrate the mundane. Absolutely. Yeah, so what does that mean to you? That means that black children lose their first tooth and have to put it under their pillow and wait for the tooth fairy just like everybody else. That means black children get on the bus every day and, you know, go to school and have different kinds of experiences on the bus. Um, that deserve to be talked about. Black children go to 
kindergarten for the first time and they're scared and mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out how to make friends and how to get the teacher to like them and how to learn and, and grow. And that deserves to be celebrated. And it happens. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in black children's books, but you are more than likely to go into a bookstore right now and find way more books about slavery, the civil rights movement, or someone who bounced a basketball for the first time or mm-hmm. hit a baseball for the first time or was a jazz musician than you are sort of the everyday experience of all children, including black children. And you spend a lot of time thinking about children as a mother yourself, but you also work for parenting yes. um, and you have the the website My Brown Baby, which a lot of people follow. But I'm thinking about, you know, in Fresh Prince, Will Smith's character, great, charismatic, fun. He wore checkered pants. <laughs> <laughs> lots of colors, bright exactly. colors, lots of colors. <laughs> now, now in real life, he's a dad, right. and he says his own kids would have loved Fresh Princess growing up. So, so what is this character like? What is this main character? Her name oh, is Destiny. Goodness, Destiny is just juicy and full of goodness, and she is, you know, she she marches to her own beat. Uh, she is honest and forthright and funny. Um, and she goes through experiences that are kind of haphazard. And then she kind of has to figure out how to make it right. Um, and she figures that out uh, with integrity, you mm-hmm. know, for a kid who is smart and being raised by two parents who are thoughtful and loving, um, being the little sister of a big sister who kind of guides the way for her and sort of encourages her to to fix her problems with integrity, but to, you know, like have fun doing it. So she is kind of a spin on the Fresh Prince, um, you know, just kind of getting into sort of situation. She has her crew that she gets introduced to on the block. Um, and she, uh, the first book focuses on her family moving to West Philadelphia. So she's not moving to Bel Air. Uh-huh. <laughs> she's moving from an, uh, a, a town that we do not say what it is. And she's moving back to West Philadelphia, which is, of course, um, where the Fresh Prince moved from to go to Bel Air and also where Will Smith is from. And so it's a love letter to, to West Philadelphia. So if you're from West Philly, you'll see all different kinds of homages to uh, the neighborhood and the growth and the art and the culture. And Fresh Fresh Princess is sitting right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. So you have not only written books, children's books, and you've started, as you said, your own imprint. So in publishing language, this is kind of a distinct category yes. of books under the umbrella of a publisher. Yours, Deneen Milner Books. Uh, <laughs> so what are some of the challenges or questions that you face when deciding to start your own imprint? This is a big job, right? Yeah, it is. It is. But it's a fun job. It's it's. I get to go and work with writers who love the written word and babies and illustrators who love bringing those stories to life. Um, and, you know, the, the beauty of the imprint is that I get to do what I want to and to find people who are willing to tell the stories that I want to bring to life. This is something, I mean, you're an author who's written a number of successful books for adult readers as well, collaborated with people like Steve Harvey, uh, Taraji Henson, um, I think you worked with Jesse Norman, uh, Magic Johnson. I mean, this is, so, so what is that process like of working on a book with somebody else, not necessarily a writer, mm-hmm. but have a great story to tell? Mm-hmm. How does that, what's the difference between that kind of collaboration sure. and, and ghostwriting, let's say? Well, you know, my background is as a journalist. Yeah. I started out as a political reporter and then 
got tired of seeing that sausage being made and became an entertainment journalist and then an editor. Um, and so I bring that to the table. It, to me, it's just sort of um, a really super long profile, an entertainment profile. It's me sitting and talking to them, figuring out what it is that they want to say to their audience, and then devising an outline that's pretty rudimentary. It can be as simple as me writing some notes on the back of an envelope. Mm-hmm. Like, really, that's how it goes down. But these and are then, people who are really conscious of absolutely. the brand, who they are, absolutely. what they're selling. I mean, how do you manage that? We sit and we just talk. Um, you know, I don't want to say that I become friends with them because that's not my job. It's not my job to be their friend. But we do sit and we just have conversations. I don't look at it as we're going to sit down. I'm going to ask you a bunch of really hard questions and I'm going to put you on the hot seat. That's not what the point is. The point is for us to have conversations and to have them tell me about their lives. And then we sit down. I sit down and I translate what we've talked about into a narrative that makes sense for their brand, that makes sense for their journey, that makes sense for who they are as human beings. Um, and it, it just it's easy because it's just a translation of a really good conversation. Mm-hmm. Conversation is what you do, <laughs> partially, uh, in books. And also you're a co-host of GPB's A Seat at the Table. So I'm just wondering, with all these things you've got, blogging, writing, the imprint, um, television, wh- where does that energy come from? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I came in here like, ooh, Lordy, I'm tired. <laughs> um I just feel like I'm living life and I'm doing what I'm passionate about. And, you know, everything that I do is focused on the African-American experience. I grew up in this industry as a journalist, as a writer, um, being told that what I was doing was pigeonholing myself by just talking about black folks. And I never looked at it that way. I always looked at covering African-Americans as like a beat, no different from being a correspondent in China or no different from covering tech or no different from covering politics. It's just fun to me to be able to shine a light and explore all of these different um, genres uh, or to explore the African-American experience through all these different genres. And so long as, you know, the opportunity is presented to me, I'm going to take it. Deneen Milner, what a pleasure speaking with you. It was great talking to you, too. Thank you for having me. That is my earlier conversation with Deneen Milner. Since then, Deneen was presented with the opportunity to host a new podcast for GPB, and she took it. The first episode of Speakeasy with Deneen drops on October 24th. Eugene Bullard was born in Columbus, Georgia, to a father who had been enslaved and a mother from the indigenous Creek tribe. Bullard left the Jim Crow South more than a century ago and became the first military pilot of African descent in the world. A bronze statue of Bullard was unveiled at the Museum of Aviation this week. GPB's Ross Terrell went to the dedication and has more on Bullard's legacy. Eugene Bullard's life started in Columbus, Georgia, in the thick of the Jim Crow era. In fact, the mistreatment of blacks and the quality of life in the South drove him to leave home around the age of 11 in search of something better. And more than a century after he was born, his life is what brought people of all races together under one roof. I am absolutely holding back tears to finally have him recognized and to have him recognized here in Georgia where he had to leave from. That's Harriet Bullard White 
She's one of Eugene's cousins. As a young boy, he wandered around Georgia in his pursuit of happiness. And when he was unable to find it, he went overseas. As a 16-year-old, stole away on a ship. He first arrived in Scotland before making his way to France. His path to becoming the first black fighter pilot in the world and later being called the Black Swallow of Death by the Germans during World War I sounds quite mythological. He was a street performer, then worked on the fish wagon, spent some time as a dock worker, and eventually became a boxer, a prized fighter. Bullard White says her favorite stories about her older cousin are the ones that show how much of a renaissance man he was. From being a drummer to speaking three different languages to having Ernest Hemingway be so intrigued by him that he would mention him in one of his books. The character Jake in Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises heavily resembles Eugene's life. But as his resume grew, so did tensions in the world. Bullard was only 19 when World War I started. And because of the color of his skin, he had to fly for a different red, white, and blue. It was very important that uh, a foreigner came and uh, really uh, helped the, the French army because, it was, of course, he was risking death every day. That's Vincent Hummerl, the Consul General of France in Atlanta. Bullard has some 15 military decorations from the French, including the Legion of Honor, France's version of the United States Medal of Honor. Hamro says Bullard's determination and sacrifice should serve as inspiration to anyone. And one thing that stuck with him, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Like Charles Hood, who is a walking embodiment of Bullard's inspiration. He's a member of the Atlanta chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen and served in the Air Force for 35 years. He says this statue unveiling is a correction of history that so often forgets about the contributions of black people. History has been revitalized, given life, and being reflected to show that uh, every war we've ever been in and an African-American have been involved. But Hood says Bullard's greatest contribution was showing that being a black fighter pilot was even possible. And that legacy has trickled down to Hood's grandson, who just left for Afghanistan as a member of the U.S. Air Force. As Harriet waited for the blue covering to be removed from Bullard's statue, she recounted the trauma he had to endure. From his brother being hanged in a dispute over land to not being able to fight for his country. But she admitted it felt pretty good to see him get his respect. This is a state that is welcoming the native son. It's a hundred years, but it's never too late. Bullard would eventually come back to America, where he'd work and later die in New York. But now he stands, arms crossed, looking over his right shoulder, head slightly tilted up, larger than life, encapsulated in bronze, back in the state that he once called home. That is GPB's Ross Terrell reporting from Robbins Air Force Base, where Eugene Bullard will forever be memorialized. Well, a few more fleeting events coming up this weekend. Tonight, I'm going to be on stage with podcast host and best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. Gladwell introduced the tipping point and stickiness, among other things, to America's thought process. And his new book, Talking to Strangers, is about the tragic results of miscommunication. On Saturday, I'll be in Shelman, Georgia for the Boudlow Bryant Festival. And on Sunday, MSNBC host Rachel Maddow will talk with me about her new book, Blowout. It is super timely. It's linking the oil and gas industry to Russian tampering with elections and the geopolitical tensions now going on in Ukraine. She'll be at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on Sunday, October 13th. We hope to see you at one of these events. 
There are details at gpbnews.org. Meanwhile, back on the radio tomorrow at 9 with more of On Second Thought, or you can listen to the podcast anytime. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is GPB.